You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Now that Dara's been released by the mole people. I'm sure it was a perfectly normal tunnel, but I'm not used to seeing it on my way here. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Before we get started, I want to let you know uh, we are going to be doing a live show. Event's going to be on December 18th at the Sixth and I Synagogue here in Washington, D.C. at 7 p.m. Tickets are going to cost $30. We will also have the link in show notes. Uh, Now, we are going to talk about something a little uh, mysterious that at least came onto my radar as Donald Trump Jr. was on his book tour uh, promoting Triggered. Triggered is supposed to be about how the left is triggered uh, by Donald Trump Jr. and his dad and the conservative movement. Uh, But he was met with hecklers, I guess, uh, not from the triggered left, but from the further to the right of Don Jr. And these people were, they are called gripers, which I don't know what that means. It's it's some kind of allusion to a variant of the cartoon frog. Is is that right, Jane? Okay. So let, let's start out with just a couple of things. Um, yeah. I, I want to be clear that this is a, it's a fight. I, I was just saying that it was, it's a very stupid thing that is also very important and actually kind of terrifying to me. Groiper is a reference to a meme that is of kind of if Pepe the Frog, if people remember that kind of alt-right meme or that didn't begin as an alt-right meme, but the alt-right took it and will not give it back. This is kind of, Groiper is kind of the cousin of Pepe, who is overweight and is kind of sitting with his fist under his chin, looking contemplative. Mm-hmm. And it is supposed to be kind of the outwardly racist cousin of Pepe the Frog. Again, wait, wait, this is- wait. So the problem here is that, and, and this is, I, I feel like I am coming at this from absolutely this is nothing. The, this is the but- weeds. Let's not be afraid to break down the cartoon frogs right, in excruciating right, like- detail. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding was that the reason that Pepe the Frog was such a great meme for the alt-right was because it meant something to the initiated, but was totally unobjectionable if you weren't initiated, and therefore was a great way to, like, trigger the libs while maintaining that you had an innocent, you know, motive. So you're saying that these guys looked at Pepe the Frog and said the problem with that is the subtlety? Yep. 
Right. So they cool. so they adopted a, a more a more aggressive frog meme. Why are they mad at Donald Trump Jr.? I feel like this is one of those things where I'm kind of explaining, like, I'm attempting to explain something that is just like, look, this is all will make total sense eventually, but it also shouldn't make total sense because it's kind of ridiculous. So the challenge is not necessarily Donald Trump Jr. The so-called Groiper Army is targeting what it calls conservative ink, which it basically argues, essentially, is betraying Donald Trump by not being racist enough, by not being immigration restrictionist enough, and arguably by not being homophobic enough, and also on specific issues relating to Israel that basically are anti-Semitic, but then they attempt to argue are not really anti-Semitic. This is essentially, um, and I've argued that it's basically the alt-right of 2016 and 2017 warmed over and then giving itself a new name and attempting to deal with the biggest issue that the alt-right faced after Unite the Right in 2017, which was an optics issue. Essentially, this big fight over looking like Nazis, looking like racists, looking bad. And so now the so-called Groiper army essentially wants to argue that, you know, we are the real conservatives. We are the true cons, so to speak. The challenge is that that's that's not exactly true. And we could kind of get into sort of how this all began. Some of it is very much about, like, people on the internet not liking other people on the internet. But the reason I find this to be particularly interesting is because one of the challenges that, you know, any political movement has is that the outward bounds of that movement are sometimes viewed to be more correct than the center bounds of that movement. And so the way that the America First movement, which is what this is called in its kindest, nicest way that is attempting to deal with that optics issue, is basically arguing that we are traditionalist Christian conservatives and the conservative Inc., as represented by two student organizations, Turning Point USA and Young Americans for Freedom, are the you know are betraying the conservative cause that this isn't what Donald Trump wanted we want what Donald Trump said he was going to give us specifically on immigration and some other issues and you know we're the real conservatives the but the problem is that these are basically a bunch of former allies of Richard Spencer and friends of white nationalists from Identity Europa and other groups who are attempting to obfuscate their views, including deleting a host of videos that they posted. Um, The person who led this is a 22-year-old former conservative radio host who got fired for comparing um, interracial sex to having sex with a dog and talking about how Jews were a problem for him in his daily life. So it, so it sounds like one dynamic here, right? Something that progressives are acutely attuned to is the extent to which the mainstream conservative movement has accepted Donald Trump, right? That there was a time during the height of the 2016 primary when National Review was running cover packages called Against Trump, when conservative donors were saying, like, I'm never getting on board with Donald Trump, when there were Republican members of Congress who were like, I won't endorse him, right? And one consequence of that is that there was like a fun, entertaining fight inside conservative politics, right? So if you did like Donald Trump, as a conservative, like as an extremely online person, there were lots of people you could argue with because the conservative establishment was overtly hostile to Trump, 
right? So there was this like constant battle and they they would call mainstream conservatives cucks and some of them were overtly anti-Semitic and there was like a lot of crazy shit happening, right? And then Trump, as part of his like conquesting of the Republican Party, has been to stop all of that. Right? Like, Trump doesn't do tweets against Mitch McConnell anymore. He doesn't sponsor primary challenges to incumbent Republican Party politicians. His attorney general goes and gives a speech at the Federalist Society, and all the most establishment conservatives in the universe come and clap. Right. And like he will have his moments where he's like railing against never Trumpers in the specific context of the impeachment inquiry. But like the rapprochement between Trump and the establishment is a two way street. Right. And if you like envisioned your role in the world as like as a as a street brawler for a, a, the overthrow of the conservative establishment, you haven't got that. Right. It's like right. Donald Trump sits atop the pyramid, but the rest of the pyramid looks a lot how it did before. Right. There's been no revaluation of, of, of values. Um, the donors to Turning Points USA are the same people, which is it's not like an anti-Trump group or something, but the people behind it are just the same people behind everything else in conservative politics, right? And so, like, if you want to run the world, you need to fight. Right. And I think that that actually gets into a couple of other things. Um, You know, this is also, this is all happening at the same time that, you know, Roger Stone was just um, found guilty last week. And there have just been a couple of instances, and there was a terrific piece um, in, I think, early 2018 from Politico that was basically about how these kind of Trumpian celebrity-ish people, far-right activists uh, like Mike Cernovich or Milo Yiannopoulos, and all these people who essentially thought that Trump's victory meant a victory for them as well. Even Richard Spencer, in some senses. But so, what what specifically happened? Though, can we can we go go back back to the basics? You you, yes. you wrote a good article on this, but like, what were the precipitating incidents? Because I think like normal people are like, oh, Trump, he's terrible. I'm right? still lost. So it's so it's like, okay. what, what what did the Groper Army do? So this has to do with a person, uh, a former conservative radio host named Nick Fuentes, and Fuentes, um, kind of a longtime white nationalist fellow traveler. He has had this long-standing dislike for Charlie Kirk, who's the president of Turning Point USA. And Kirk himself has had this very strange role in the movement where um, when he started Turning Point USA, it was basically like Young Americans for Freedom Redux, very much of kind of standard uh, conservative viewpoints. And then Trump became popular and then Trump won the presidency and Turning Point USA became kind of the Trumpist conservative organization, really focusing on how socialism sucks and really focusing on bringing specific conservative speakers to college campuses. Now, Fuentes hates Charlie Kirk. It's not that important, but that's kind of how this starts. And Fuentes starts trying to go to events that feature Charlie Kirk and get photographed with him in order to embarrass him because he's aware that that would look bad. And this has also happened as um, Turning Point USA has been kind of consistently having issues of racism within its own ranks. And they cut ties with a brand ambassador, which is not a paid position. Uh, her name is Ashley St. Clair, who was photographed with Fuentes. And that kind of started this entire fight. And you're starting to see um, within Turning Point USA, and this is a big deal in the world of conservatism for reasons that I'll explain in just a second, there have been a host of resignations from chapters and the dissolving of a chapter entirely at Kansas State University. Um, 
a source told me that Turning Point USA decided to dissolve that chapter because they were so influenced by Fuentes. And Turning Point has a, quote, very specific big tent message. Fuentes is a white nationalist, you're saying? Yes, yes. And not not that he's the only one in this boat, but is is that not a Spanish name? It is. And that is actually of some degree of conversation on uh, the racist message boards that I check on every day. I see. Um, but he is some, you know, he is viewed largely, uh, specifically uh, by neo Nazis as kind of being white, and so they think that he is Close he enough. has the capacity to be a leader, especially because he, you know, I spoke to him in March, and something that was interesting about him was how he was very effective at to the same degree that a lot of white nationalists are at putting his views in ways that he thinks will be the most amenable to the person who is listening to them. So, for example, we talked via Twitter DM, and he talked about how, you know, he opposes interracial marriage because he thinks that that could be a compatibility issue. Okay. And I asked him about his uh, views on, you know, but I'm like, you know, on white civil rights, and he told me my question was problematic. And it was just interesting how he had clearly interpreted the language or the linguistic stylings of people he thinks of as being on the left, but interpreted them for his own purposes. And, you know, the reason why this is all taking place on college campuses is because college campuses loom very large in the conservative imagination. We've talked before about the entire concept of cancel culture and protests and things like that on college campuses. But since uh, the 1960s, when Young Americans for Freedom was founded as kind of this means of getting young conservatives while they're young and getting them access to the halls of power while they're young— has always been a big part of conservatism, specifically movement conservatism. And what Fuentes is essentially doing is he's been having, um, and we saw this happening at the uh, Donald Trump Jr. event, which was not supposed to have a Q&A, but then a bunch of people screamed and demanded a Q&A, and um, Trump Jr. and his fiance left the stage, is essentially that they have been asking members of this Groiper army to go to events. And um, I spoke with... A, Dan Crenshaw, the congressman, and he said, you know, the basic nature of the questions is to ask a question that seems like a legitimate policy difference. And then it starts getting pretty clear that what they're actually asking about is like a racist conspiracy theory. So, for example, um, Crenshaw, you know, some of the suggested questions for Crenshaw are things about like, you know, thank you for your service. Um, how does it make you feel to see um, America, you know, the greatest country in the world, sending so much money to Israel based on XX conspiracy theory about Israel attacking the United States or being responsible in some way for September 11? Did you go into the military to, de- to defend sodomy? Because these are very homophobic people um, involved in this army. And a lot of questions about white birth rates or kind of demographic replacement conspiracy theories. And we've started to see a couple of people who were thought of as being within mainstream conservatism who are voicing avid support for Fuentes and these groups, basically on the argument that they are standing up for real conservatism. Michelle Malkin is probably the most uh, primary example. She gave a speech at UCLA, kind of her her last for Young Americans for Freedom before Young Americans for Freedom severed ties with her after 17 years of hosting her events on college campuses. Um, She said, you know, not all of us have occupied ourselves solely with owning libs and reciting clunky MAGA rap anthems while America crumbles. And so, you know, she basically thinks that, you know, there's these conservatives who are part of Open Borders, Inc., 
And, you know, they have been they've betrayed the conservative cause while real conservatives like Pat Buchanan have been standing up for American values, namely a complete cutoff of immigration altogether and a real concern about non-white immigration and non-white people because, you know, the view is that non-white people will never vote for Republicans when my thought is, well, clearly they won't because you guys sound terrible. But it's it's this really interesting fight to me because this is not, you know, there have been a host of conservatives who've spoken out against this because it is very clear how racist and how specifically anti-Semitic these groups are because essentially they're saying, like, Jewish influence is why immigration is taking place in America at all. And so there are a bunch of good pieces in um, the uh, Washington Examiner and a couple of other outlets, conservative outlets, and Ben Shapiro gave a whole speech on the subject, basically saying, you know, that this is not the conservatism we recognize. This is not conservatism. But then Malkin and this Groyper army are basically saying, no, 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 we're the real conservatives. This is what it really is. And I've talked a lot on Twitter and elsewhere about the importance of guardrails. But the challenge to guardrails is when the people on the on the wrong side of the guardrail think that they're the real conservative, that they're the real ones, that everybody else is, you know, a fake, a, um, you know, kind of a rhino. You know, you're starting to see this real challenge where especially because you have seen groups like Turning Point USA and others kind of making, you know, making arguments that sounded familiar enough that Michelle Malkin could associate herself with them. And then, you know, when confronted by the distillation of these arguments, they keep, they're backing away from it altogether. I have a question here that is not as snarky as it sounds. Okay. Um, but that, you know, I find myself wondering what the stakes are here in a kind of macro political way, right? Like I like, you know, I am familiar with the existence of conservative organizations that exist for the purpose of trying to, you know, take conservative young people and get them mobilized in conservative politics for a lifetime. I am aware that those do a decent job of mobilizing the small amount of young people they can actually pay. Um, or, you know, who like who who are kind of made stars out of, out of that movement. And that there is also this separate discourse around them that happens in which older conservative donors think that this is the way to reach the youth and therefore give it a lot more of an ear in terms of how the youth of America or the conservative youth should be reached than perhaps is actually measured, you know, in what conservative youth care about. It seems to me that a lot of what has happened in the reconsideration of conservative reassessment of white identity politics and, like, taking a, you know, we'll agree to disagree or, like, we shouldn't be too mad about it approach to it is the idea that Donald Trump mobilized a tranche of honest-to-goodness voters who were not mobilized previously, which, like, gets back to the 2016 primary and the idea that he had found the missing white voters and that there were all of these extremely enthusiastic people in Republican politics who hadn't existed in Republican politics before, and that maybe for the sake of not alienating those people, you should listen to what the guy in the red MAGA hat was saying, and maybe, you know, a little bit of it will rub off on you. That itself is, you know, that that's, that is a whole dynamic in itself with a lot of assumptions about who's not going to get turned off by that kind of openness. But it intersects with this youth politics in a weird way where I'm not totally sure if the honest-to-goodness, like, 
Trump youth vote out there, A, is synonymous with the most enthusiastic Trumpers. It seems to me like there should have been a lot more QAnon in this whole entire thing if this really was something that had kind of cross-generational output and not just this, like, clique of irony bros who are extremely into politics and extremely online. And I also wonder a little bit about the existence of a feud between conservative youth organizations that can pretty easily be boiled down to— Charlie Kirk knows that Nick Fuentes is coming after his sweet, sweet conservative donor money. So I would kind of love to to, to know a little bit more about, like, are there actual persuadable young conservatives who are caught in the crossfire here? Is this a representation of, like, any honest-to-goodness groundswell? Or is this a way that the conservative—and, you know, I understand that conservative media serves an important guardrails function and institution building and all of that, but, like, is there something here beyond the conservative movement's ability to sustain its own ecosystem? I mean, it seems telling to me, though, that, like, Turning Points USA has gone through these sort of repeated, like, purges of basically, like, overt white nationalist entryism into their college chapters, right? I mean, like, that's that's telling you something. I mean, on one hand, like, good for them— that's the right thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, it's like, what what is going on exactly if that's what's happening at your campus organizations? You know what I mean? Like you are you are seeing it does seem to me, I mean, a a political mobilization, particularly because in in the youth cohort, right, uh, white people are uh, much scarcer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in the general population, and it makes more sense, honestly, to have like identity based political mobilization in a like no majority population context, right? I think there is a like small c conservatism to a lot of conservative racial politics in America, which is like white people in older cohorts where the population is overwhelmingly white and where the culture has always represented overwhelmingly white perspectives just kind of saying like leave me alone man you know like stick to sports kind of thing right not like a a self-conscious ideology of whiteness but that the, you see that more among younger people who are white and want to be right wing and it seems like a fairly real thing that is going on in these campus organizations not just the kind of personalized feud sociological question though to what extent can a young person in an overwhelmingly white community be said to have a legitimately minoritized white racial identity that in a way an older person in that same overwhelmingly white community would not you gotta look at the community I mean you gotta look at the school populations right uh, which which I do think are quite different it's it's common to have there was a story in the Times about about uh, Yakima, Washington, but it, it's a fairly common situation there where it's like the town is majority white, but the school system is majority Latino because, uh, you know, there's a different demographic balance and a different, uh, I think, dynamic in there. So one thing I think that is important here that I want to go back to um, per Dara's question is the fight is not just between campus student organizations. Um, I mean, in kind of college conservatism writ large. Because the challenge is that now the conservative movement is college conservatism on its face. Um, I wrote a piece a while back at, when I was at MTV focused on this issue about how all of the entire conservative movement had essentially turned into the, you know, the college conservative organizations like Young Americans for Freedom that hosted affirmative action bake sales and catch an illegal immigrant day on my college campus, where this is just what that looks like. It's just what conservatism looks like writ large. And, you know, this is the conservatism that we saw at the Republican National Convention in 2016. This is the conservatism of just being, you know, 
being very excited about or, you know, purportedly very excited about the suffering of others. If we remember, you know, kind of a lot of the tweets about Syrian immigrants or immigrants at all, or the idea of refugees and the idea of what to do with them, you know, kind of this, the cruelty is the point, is the campus conservatism writ large that I think we've seen movement conservatism appear to be, at least on its face. But the challenge is that the Gripers and Nick Fuentes and the host of all these people believe that that cruelty is what conservatism is. And I don't think it is. And I think a lot of people don't think it is. And I think that that's the challenge here. Um, there was a piece in The Spectator that was talking about this. And The Spectator is a conservative publication that's gone a lot back and forth on this specific issue. But it basically argues that, you know, it's there is no such thing as Trumpism. And what they are, you know, what all these campus groups are trying to battle over is battling over the whether or not the conservative movement should be defined by that appearance of Trumpism. That Trumpism, the kind of the triggering the libs and the campus conservatism that I remember from college and a lot of people might remember from college that became the what conservatism looked like to a lot of people. You know, I, I'm teaching a class at the University of Chicago about about conservatism. And I remember asking people, you know, asking my students, you know, what do you think of when you think of conservatism in our first class? And uh, the, I remember the first couple responses were angry and mean. And this is a fight about whether or not that cruelty or anger and meanness is a real thing, a real phenomenon, whether or not that is what conservatism is supposed to look like. And not, you know, not just look like, but be. And so, I think the fact that it's happening on college campuses and it's happening kind of with these, you know, with Donald Trump Jr. and cartoon frogs and white nationalists is actually kind of this overall fight about not just the guardrails of the movement, but what the movement is for. You know, that's always been one of the big challenges with um, conservatism, because conservatism is an inherently, and I mean this in the most objective standpoint, it's a reactionary movement and always has been. Edmund Burke was reacting to the the French Revolution. Um, William F. Buckley was reacting to the secularization of college campuses when he wrote God and Man at Yale and kind of the founding of National Review. And Grover the Frog is reacting to uh, growing diversity in the American Conservatism has always been very good at figure at knowing what it opposes. You know, we saw that with fusionism, um, where libertarians and conservatives kind of came to common cause because they were reacting to the threat of communism or the perceived threat of communism. But you know, the battle of what conservatism is for is way more complicated and way more difficult to determine. And what you're starting to see is, you know, particularly via young people, via young people who have been extremely online and now somewhat in person, this idea of like, no, our conservatism should be whites only. It should be excluding LGBT people. It should be this specific thing. And how can you tell me it's not? How can you tell me it's not when Donald Trump, you know, made these statements in 2015, 2016, when the same people that you tried to push out of the movement more recently were people who seemed very close to the president in 2015, 2016? How can you tell me this is not what conservatism is when you said essentially, when you were fine making common cause with these people during the presidential election and kind of left them behind when Mitch McConnell essentially gained more power? And it's, you know, I think that that's kind of the underlying story here. And that's why I think it's so interesting and also kind of terrifying. Okay, let's let's take a break, and then, then I want to ask, ask Dara something. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay, so, you know, Jane was talking about a sense of of betrayal uh, uh, on the part of of some people coming from the more uh, racist, I guess, side of the conservative movement. But I would say, you know, Trump has reconciled with establishment conservatism on so many fronts. But on the core topic of immigration, I feel like he has really kept faith. I mean, you could be reasonably disappointed by what he's been able to achieve, uh, but that's because passing laws in America is challenging. Um, He has done an incredible amount, though, relative to what he actually can, uh, with Stephen Miller being a very active and engaged, you know, presence across the breadth of executive discretion on on immigration policy. Uh, He has also been in the news recently, thanks to a uh, sort of trove of emails that uh, I guess a former Breitbart editor uh, put out. It's generated a a fair amount of controversy uh, discussing uh, the idea that he has been recommending uh, a lot of articles from white nationalists to other people. I should say he he also recommended a uh, Libby Nelson Vox explainer about the SATs. Uh, goes to show Vox explainers they're for everyone. It's a great piece. Um, but I know I know Dara wants to wants to defend her I, her I friend Steve and, and Vdare. I, I super do not want any any part of any of this. Um, <laughs> so the, the so same like, question so, is Vdare really right? I mean that's what this comes down to. Yes, right. So the question for me and like cards on the table. I think that there's been a certain reaction outside of DC to the reaction within DC uh, in like uh, to this, you know. Stephen Miller email trove that has been, why aren't we talking, why are we talking about anything other than the fact that Stephen Miller is a white nationalist? Mm. Um, And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that there's an impeachment on. Two is that, frankly, and like, I knew this was coming. A lot of people knew this was coming. This has been a, to the extent that I like, that I go socialize with other people who are in political circles, this has been a topic of discussion. I will give you the first person version of this narrative, which I think explains why I have 
not found this to be as mind-blowing as but, everyone but, else. But does. what's, what's but like, V-Dare for right. those so, who don't yes, know? The way a lot of people have come to this is is through a headline that is like Stephen, you know, Stephen Miller's emails show that sure. Stephen Miller is a white nationalist. Yes. And I think that's the story that like we were all getting on the, you know, whatever post-Georgetown, post-cocktail party circuit. And it turns <laughs> out that what the Southern Poverty Law Center means when they say Stephen Miller's emails show Stephen Miller is a white nationalist is that Stephen Miller was in 2016, sending a lot of emails to this then Breitbart editor who has since, like, renounced the alt-right and, you know, there was a big BuzzFeed profile of her earlier this year. And then Miller was trying to kind of encourage her to write about these things that happened to share white nationalist concerns. And that he was doing so using these right-wing websites that are generally regarded as not the sort of thing a respectable conservative will link to. Like, there's a link to the American Renaissance in there, which is a, you know, malicious, sympathetic, uh, super, you know, super racist right-wing group. There's a link to a few—there are some links to VDARE, which is a site that's literally named after the first white child born in America, uh, and that is, you know, very much on board with the idea that America is a— is a Volk as well, you know, it, more so than it is a state or any kind of, like, creedal nation. So right. this, the, the fact that this is not only what Stephen Miller is reading, but what he is encouraging into, you know, Breitbart certainly isn't anyone—no one thinks that Breitbart is a high-minded gatekeeper for the right, but it certainly is regarded to be a little bit more mainstream, certainly in a Trumpian conservatism than Vidar and Amran are. And so the idea here is that is that Miller is kind of working to get these, to make these noxious ideas less noxious. Right. And one thing that's interesting, um, so a host, I wrote about this because Peter Brimlow, uh, who, who founded Vidar, he was a, among a host of people who have been fired from mainstream conservative publications and found themselves at these extremely far-right racist websites. Um, Brimlow was fired in 1997 from National Review as what people, some people called a purge of racists from the magazine. Another person who works for or has written for VDARE is John Derbyshire, who was fired in 2012 from National Review for arguing that white people naturally have higher IQs than black people. And um, that and white people should rationally be afraid of black people. Right. And so, you know, among the contributors to VDARE and kind of just to illustrate is uh, Jason Kessler, who wrote a piece entitled, Yes, Virginia Dare, There Is Such a Thing as White Genocide, in the same month that he helped organize the Unite the Right rallies. And, you know, after Unite the Right, VDARE said that, you know, why should Unite the Right apologize for anything? Indeed, how can the far right be regarded as anything other than an incredibly moderate protest movement against the deliberate campaign of genocide? And I'll remind you now that um, a woman was murdered at Unite the Right. Um, and so I think that the challenge, I think I agree with Dara that that's basically been the argument that, you know, VDARE and Amren, you know, which is uh, linked with Jared Taylor, who's a white nationalist. Um, it was it was interesting because the, the New York Times basically set, let uh, Jared Taylor argue, like, well, I'm not a white nationalist. And I was like, no, 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 you decidedly are. You uh, decidedly, that's what you are. That's, you know, be, it's cool. That's good. Um, and so, you know, they basically have argued, repeat, you know, I think the argument is that by sending these articles and sending these pieces to Breitbart, he was attempting to influence a specific worldview that was very much linked with white nationalism more broadly. So the thing about this for me, and the reason that 
I think there is a whole lot of I'm outraged that you're not more outraged going on here as opposed to like genuine anyone moving their opinion on it or getting more mobilized about it is I think if you asked 99.9% of people who are extremely exercised about Stephen Miller like trying to push Breitbart to cover more of this stuff, what would you have expected Stephen Miller's inbox circa 2016 to look like? I think 99.9% of them would have said, I would expect it to look like a VDare blog post, right? Like, I don't think, I think the thing about Stephen Miller is he has not actually done anything to distance himself from any of this. Every time that he's put his own fingerprints on something, it has gotten more confrontational, more into a, you know, super battle for the soul of good and evil vision of America in a way that is alarming to anyone who thinks that diversity has to be an important part of that. But I don't think that I I I, I look at the emails and I'm like, is it a better or worse world that Stephen Miller is sharing this Vida link than that Stephen Miller is just writing this stuff himself? And I think that the reason that I find the reaction to this so weird is it seems like everyone is saying it's worse that he sends the Vida link. If he were just saying this on his own, it would be one thing. But it's worse that he's linking to somebody else saying it. And that is the leap I don't get. Here's what I think is going on. I, I think a lot of people, younger liberal people who have come to college, right, and come out of it, they bring into the real world, I think, a certain, like, discourse tactic that they learned on campus, which is that if you can prove that something is racist, then it is excluded and you win, right? So that, like, if you're having talking around, you know, like at the student center and someone's like, well, that idea would be more advantageous to more affluent people. Like that's a thing you can say and then we can all just keep talking about it. But if you say, oh, no, that's racist and you convince the people who are in charge in some sense, whether that's the RAs or the student dean or whomever, but there is an authority figure in charge and if they make an official ruling, yes, that's racist, then that will be excluded, Right? Like, you would not be allowed to put up a racist poster on the, like, campus poster wall. Right? And there could be dis disagreement about what is the – which posters are the racist ones, but the racist ones will definitely be gone. Right? So the stakes of demonstrating that something is or isn't racist are quite high. And so if you are making a bunch of arguments and one of your arguments turns out to be quoting a guy who works for a white nationalist website and he has said other things that are very, very clearly racist, that racism can infect you by like second degrees and get you excluded and like then you win. And the difficulty that I think a lot of people habituated to these speech norms have in real-world politics is that the world doesn't, doesn't work like that. There's no, like, secret mechanism by which if the New York Times or some other establishment gatekeeper is like, yes, we agree that we will unequivocally state that in our opinion, Stephen Miller is a white supremacist, that, like, therefore, Stephen Miller's immigration policy ideas are vanquished. You know what I mean? But I think that that's what a lot of this is is about, right? That, like, Stephen Miller puts forward, he writes a 
new regulation that will exclude people who are using means-tested social benefits from being able to immigrate to the United States, right? And you want to prove that the motivation for this is racism. And so then you do this whole elaborate sort of investigative process, and you prove that, yes, Stephen Miller is a white nationalist. And then what you're hoping for is, like, then you win the policy debate. Right. But like actual politics doesn't work like that. Like most voters are white um, in the key swing states uh, for the Electoral College is even whiter than the overall electorate in the Senate is even whiter than the Electoral College. And like basically the argument, my policy choices benefit white people. That's like a winning political hand. Right. Even if like crazy groper stuff and like I hate Israel because I'm an anti-Semite is a losing political argument, like my immigration policy supports the interests of the majority of American voters. That's like a good argument for Stephen Miller. Right. And like if you actually want to win a political argument about immigration policy, you need to win something else. Right. Not a like expose and the dark heart of Stephen Miller's racial motives, but like actually convince people that a more open immigration policy is better for the country. And so that to me, like, yes, like, I, I think, like, there is clearly an ugly racial motivation behind these things. But it's just not, to me, it's not the, like, Trump card that I think Miller's critics want it to be. So I think it's wild because everything you described with the once we can all agree that something is racist, that thing loses dynamic is something that I associate with the kind of middle-aged and older conservatives who find themselves constantly, like, on the back foot in the current Trump era, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, it seems to me that there's a very similar dynamic in a post-1960s conservative uh, conservatism in which, like, yes, we can all agree that the left calls a lot of things racist that in fact are not racist, but we are going to demonstrate that we are the rational ones by saying everyone agrees that David Duke is out the tent, yeah. tent right? And that, and so our ability to agree on that makes it possible for us to, you know, defend ourselves with honor against these accusations that everything is a racism. And it seems to me that a lot of the kind of not quite never Trump, but certainly Trump-bivalent conservatives have been a little bit weirded out by the fact that they can't find those bright lines that everyone can agree on anymore, right? That the younger generation is not super interested in saying, here is the sacrifice, sacrificial lamb that we're going to throw up there so that everyone can agree that the rest of us aren't racist. That You know, if anything, they're saying, well— in the name of free speech, we should let this person into the tent. And at most, they're saying this person is actually, you know, is the ringleader of the tent if we're going to extend the circus metaphor. So, you know, it does seem to me that there are people who could be using, people who are likely to disagree with Stephen Miller on immigration, who are likely to be very concerned about a post-Trump future of the Republican Party and therefore have a very good reason to take down an intellectual architect of Trumpism who's also like, I don't know, what is he, 33? And who are not using this opportunity to say, look, Stephen Miller is toxic and, you know, bad for the Republican, all of that. And I really wonder why that is. I mean, I think that one of the challenges here, and it, it's it's funny how much kind of campus conservatism has influenced what conservatism looks like writ large. And, you know, there's always kind of these allegations from people on the right that, like, you know, the left just does whatever college campuses want, which I'm like, I feel like college campuses don't have nearly as many debates about Medicare for all as Perhaps they would if that were more true. But I think that 
one of the challenges is that you're seeing a lot of people with regard to kind of this Graper army making the point of like, oh, you know, you just want to push them out of the movement because you can't handle free speech. And usually what you should do is debate them and debate their views. And it's kind of the debate me, you coward viewpoint. And I think that the argument here is, and you're seeing this from conservatives who are seeing this for themselves, perhaps for the first time, is that, you know, it turns out that there are certain things where I don't think we should need to debate that. For instance, um, one of the big pushes, as I mentioned, from this kind of group around from Fuentes himself is that um, inter- miscegenation, interracial relationships are disgusting and wrong. I don't think I need to debate that. I don't think I need to like hear it hash out the exact reasonings for why that's dipshit. Um, I think I should just be able to say like, well, that's stupid and move on with my life. And I think that, you know, with uh, the outright Holocaust denial that's uh, taken place here and with kind of the argument, um, you know, I know Dara wanted to mention the abject homophobia of these no, groups. I have so many questions about it. I feel like we could have a whole nother thing about, like, what takes the place of religion in a post-post-Nichean conservative movement. Well, because that's that their point is that, um, you know, right. there's there have been a few people who have referenced uh, these groups being Catholic conservatives. And Fuentes himself has spoken, he said, approvingly of Catholic fascism. But, you know, if he he doesn't appear to know what that would actually be because his religious views are largely centered on LGBT people being degenerates and Jews being bad, which is like, you know, that's a view of Catholicism that is extremely Pope Pius XII, but uh, not exactly, re- you know, relevant to our current situation. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to me how much of this seems to center on using the exact same wording of of kind of the... 2015, 2016, right. And also this weird terminology that comes from an invention of the left and combining that all into a viewpoint that you're supposed to permit, you know, for the purposes of free speech, you're supposed to permit with to be within this movement. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I guess, stand up for V-Dare here um, because, you know, Jane, you were saying like, you know, I, I don't think we should have to debate is is miscegenation disgusting. I, absolutely. Um, I, I think that there's like one topic that like hovers on the boundary line between like crazy racism that should be clearly outside the bounds and like actually a completely reasonable point that people should should talk about. And it's something that I, I've seen, I've been checking out what Zvidar been writing about recently uh, to, to prep for this episode. And, and one thing that we've had a number of different posts about is that like one of the things that the conservative mainstream wants to rule out of bounds is the idea that non-white immigration is bad because non-whites will never vote GOP and that Republicans should take this into mind consideration when shaping immigration policy. And something they point out is that when you make this exact same point in the other direction, it's very mainstream, right? It's like it's very normal to see a news article saying that the growing demographic diversity of California is going to make it even harder for Republicans to win elections in the state. This is like a like a true fact about America, right? Is that like ethnic demographics are important to partisan political outcomes. And like while I am not a Republican of any kind, so I definitely don't think we should shape policy to help Republicans win elections in the future. Like there is something to me 
normal about saying, look, we can either talk about how are we as a Republican Party, as a conservative movement, going to make changes to be more viable in the more diverse America of the future, or how can we make policy changes to make America less diverse in the future? And that a lot of, like, Trump-era Republicans in particular are like, because, like, when Bush was president, I think he had an explicit commitment to, like, one side of that, right? Like, he wanted to do amnesty on immigration policy. He had this vision through faith-based initiatives that he was going to take advantage of the fact that the African-American population is considerably more religious than the white population and try to bring religiously observant, upwardly mobile African-Americans and Latinos into Republican Party politics. Under Trump, they've clearly abandoned that like concept, right? Uh, right? Both on the racial front and on the religious front. But they have not replaced it with like a theory of how America, like how does a white political party stay viable in the longer term? Um, I would not like adopt the VDR stance on this, but I also do think that they are ranking a valid point that like this is an important consideration and it is strange for mainstream conservatives to just push it off the table and then kind of like wander around in circles. I don't, I don't know. I personally think that it's a very, very bad case of galaxy brain to assume that <laughs> you can simultaneously manufacture the makeup of the electorate vis-a-vis -vis the broader population and the racial identification of people within that electorate. Like the thing about race being socially constructed is like a political party does have some degree of influence in how people perceive themselves, sure. but not 100% of the influence. And yeah, like, but it, it turns also, out that a lot of suburban middle-aged women, for example, like do not think of themselves as non-white, but are turned off by an idea that they should be uh, deal that they should have explicit appeals to their white identity. Yes, yes, right, but I mean one one of the things that came up in here, right, was like uh, there was some memo floated at some point where they were like maybe we should do a deal where we make it easier for people to come from the EU, right? But like harder yeah. from elsewhere, right? And so like that would not if you there are ways of framing that that I think would make, you know, suburban college educated women horrified. But on the other hand, if you just I think most people actually probably don't realize how difficult it is for like middle class professional Europeans to get because it's permission hard for everybody. To immigrate. It's hard for middle no. class professional everybody. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, but right, I mean, yeah. like, it's it's not like a thing that's in the discourse. Like, nobody is, like, actively agitating to, like, make it more difficult for German engineers to come to the United States, right? And, like, you, you could do policy changes that, like, encouraged more white immigration into the United States of America. And depending on exactly how you message that, right, like, with our leading NATO partners— yeah, I who's mean, to say, is... right? Like we we have like the foreign policy is not nor outside the immigration context. Foreign policy is not conducted on the basis of like you have to treat all countries equally. I, I this is so wildly like far afield of all of this, but I have to say that if we're going to talk about the racial balance in like the the con the conflict between prioritizing certain categories of immigration and, like, the idea that you should or shouldn't raise the total number of immigrants. Like, we literally have a bill in Congress right now that is absolutely tearing both the immigration lawyer and, like, Indian American <laughs> communities apart because people who believe very firmly that, like, capping the number of visas that Indians can get when coming to the United States at like the 7% that exists for all countries is extremely racist against Indians. And people who believe that 
it is important to have some sort of broader balance with literally no one saying, let's just raise the number of green cards. Like, that is so, the idea that you can kind of do this bank shot toward a pro-immigration policy by engaging in anti-immigration politics is just not where we are right now. But one thing I do want to make very clear, um, and also there was just some breaking news on the Stephen Miller Breitbart front, which is that he sent he sent a chart specifically to Katie McHugh, who is the Breitbart um, editor in this question, uh, that he asked to be run under the Breitbart News byline, which was done so, so that he essentially got an article in Breitbart without having his name on there. But one thing I want to note is that this entire conversation about how non-white people will or won't vote is has been so historically blinkered. Um, You know, both Rick Perry and George W. Bush won 40% of the Hispanic vote when they were won the gubernatorial elections in Texas. And most black people were Republicans until around the New Deal, but largely until 1964. Like, this is not, you know, the idea that, like, you cannot turn, you cannot get non-white people to vote for Republicans or conservative candidates is belied by history. And the reason why people's cha- votes may have changed not may not be because people are inherently liberal or this idea that I've seen on kind of racist websites that non-white people will vote in this specific way because of quote-unquote group dynamics. You know, it's just not true. And perhaps it's not that non-white people changed, it's that these parties have. Okay, we, we, we need to take another break and, uh, and, and get a white paper in because we're, we're going to be kicked out of the <laughs> so we do have an actual white paper, but by way of introducing this actual white paper, I have to ethically inform the Weeds podcast listening audience that there is a scandal in Swedish administrative data, which uh, longtime listeners and less longtime listeners know is one of the gold standards for, you know, not only government kept data sets, but also the kind of data sets that you can do interesting, you know, descriptive research out of because the more complete your administrative data set is, the less likely it is to be, you know, blinkered by the kind of concerns that you often get from shoddy data sets. Except that the Swedish administrative data's, the keepers of Swedish administrative data are falling down on the job. I would argue that the Swedish state needs to step in as a matter of national pride, except that the problem is that this already is the Swedish state. Um, So there needs to be some kind of coup because what happened is the agency that is supposed to collect Swedish unemployment data outsourced the work of collecting Swedish unemployment data to a bunch of extremely poorly paid temps who were so poorly paid that either as an act of protest or because they simply could not attract the caliber of data analysts that were needed simply made up the numbers in Swedish unemployment data. So there has now had to be this post facto correction to Swedish unemployment stats that like is supposedly globally going to deal with the fact that these temps made up this data. Obviously, the moral of the story is do not entrust your administrative data sets to temps, but that does set up the white paper, which does which tells us some things about like what we can outsource to temps. Well, so here's crowdsourcing reliable local data by Jane Lawrence Sumner, Emily Farris, and Mirja Holman. Uh, they are looking at a frankly stupid problem, which is that um, it's so dumb. <laughs> sco- like- scholars in political science would sometimes like to study local politics in the United States, but there is no centralized database about like who holds offices in local government and when are the elections and what party 
party do the people belong to? And is the election partisan or nonpartisan? Stuff like that. So how is the city government structured? Right. So so as they detail, uh, you know, um, scholars working in this field tend to do either like case study methodologies or they just happen to study California and Louisiana uh, because those states publish comprehensive data. Uh, but obviously that's not the best way to look at this problem is to just look at Louisiana. Um, and there's an incredible amount of like research on city politics in New Haven because there happens to be an important university there. Uh, but I like stand up for New Haven. Co- but like, co- yes, no, it's fascinating. But like comparably sized cities that don't have Yale in them don't attract the same level of scholarship. Uh, so they basically do some experiments where they go on uh, MTurk, uh, which is like an Amazon platform where you can get uh, extremely low paid temps to do arbitrary tasks for you and show that you can, um, for a couple thousand bucks, get MTurg users to assemble for you an accurate database of like what is the name of every mayor in America. Um, and they and they go through this in, in some other ways. So they're suggesting basically that this is like a cost-feasible way for researchers to undertake large-scale, statistically valid studies of American state and local politics. They allude to the fact that some people have ethical qualms about these sub-minimum wage uh, pay rates that you are you are getting here uh, on MTurk. Um, it's also they, they kind of they kind of hand wave at that by saying that if you do sufficient beta testing with the research assistance that you as a researcher of local politics who probably has an academic appointment probably have, then you can figure out what is a fair rate to pay your MTurk monkeys. I, I sh- we should also note that MTurk is a, it's via Amazon. Yes. And um, that that has led to some additional controversy because this is an online labor system run by Amazon.com. In which they take a substantial portion of the money that is being paid by the payer of the task without giving it to the doer of the task. Precisely. I would suggest that some funder somewhere who cares about things and has, you know, a couple hundred grand to drop should like I don't know. Talk to the people behind this paper and like figure like what is the data set that people need and like can we just like produce this somehow? It like for once in a really canonical and comprehensive way that doesn't involve paying people $4 an hour? No, because, well, there's also the wild epistemological implication here, which is in addition to, like, asking the basic who is the mayor, when is the election question, they ask people to assess whether a given city has had a financial crisis yes. in the last 20 years, which you would think would be the kind of thing that would be extremely subjective, even if you're talking about it with, like, moderately informed people, much less something that I think they say in the study it takes like less than five minutes for people to complete this task. And yet there is a huge amount of consensus because they've defined the term financial crisis to the point where like it's very obvious whether or not it has happened. So, you know, if you can take a big abstract term and break it down into a few discrete things, then you get something that is much closer to a, you know, an objective reality than if you actually were to ask a bunch of like, essentially ask a survey question of a bunch of people who are being paid to answer an empirical question. I also thought it was funny that success here is like we have 95% accuracy on the question, what is the name of the mayor? Of a given, I mean, I, I, I get if you read the paper, like you understand why that's important, and it's it's good, right? I mean, one of the virtues of getting like large samples is that it then becomes like lower stakes that you be correct about the coding of every single thing in there. But it's it's genuinely weird that there is not a canonical database of who is the mayor of all the cities in America. 
that's true. All right. Like, All right. I don't really have much more than that. Okay, right. let's wrap it up. Thanks, guys. Um, thanks, as always, uh, to our sponsors, to all of you out there in uh, Facebook land and, and email world uh, who keep us posted with administrative data news from all around the universe. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer, and the weeds will return on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.